Hey, hey, bingers, happy Wednesday to all of you. Before I start the show today, I wanted to let y'all know that I will be attending CrimeCon in Las Vegas this year. I wasn't sure up till now, but I'm definitely going. Not only will I be there, but I'm working on a couple of top secret guests to come with me that I know you're going to want to hear speak with me. So I'm hoping to see a lot of you there. The conference is April 29th to May 1st in Vegas, and I can get you a 10% discount on tickets. All I have to do is go to CrimeCon.com and use my code RUFF for 10% off your tickets. That's RUFF, code RUFF, not binge, code RUFF. Make sure you use the code both so you get the discount and also to let the folks running the event to know that you're Team RUFF. So come see me in Vegas on the weekend of April 29th with code RUFF at CrimeCon.com and I really hope that a lot of you make it. I love actually getting to know you all in person. We can have a drink together, and maybe a few of you will even join me at the poker table. This isn't like most conventions. This is where you not only get to see seminars and meet the podcasters that you listen to, but you get to hang out with them. We always, every night of the convention, have after-hours kind of get-togethers, meetups, where everybody can just hang out. So come check us out. Again, that's CrimeCon.com. Get your tickets. Use code RUFF. you get 10% off. And moving on to today's show, I'm joined by the very talented creator and host of the Fox Hunter podcast, Mr. Sean Kipe. The internet's full of true crime podcasts. More and more are added to the list every day. Figuring out where to start or where to go next can be overwhelming. But have no fear, I'm here to help. I'm Bob Ruff, and this is the place to find your next true crime binge. I can already tell, Sean, from just from looking where you're sitting, that the sun is shining where you're at, uh, or it seems brighter than it is where I'm at. Well, it is actually, yeah, Atlanta. <laughs> this is the first <laughs> sunny day we've had in I don't know a week. Oh, I forget what the sun feels like sometimes. The Michigan winters are not great. This, I love living here except for the winter. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've had a pretty mild winter, like I say, with the exception of the past week and, you know, all those snowstorms kind of just barely rolled by us on their way northeast. So. Mm-hmm. Do you guys get much snow there? No. Once in a while, we'll get, you know, an inch or two, but, and, and they were calling for, you know, uh, Wow, we might get three inches and, and that kind of shut down the city and, you know, it snowed yeah. a little bit, but we didn't really get uh, anything. I mean, the, you know, didn't amount to anything. Nothing like what you're used to, I'm sure. Yeah. You southern states aren't quite used. I, I, a few years ago, I was working in Memphis and there was a dusting of snow while I was there and the entire city shut. The, the government offices shut down. I couldn't do anything. The restaurants were closed. No one could drive. Yeah, that's that's how it is in Atlanta. I mean, a, a couple years ago, we did have, uh, you know, like four or five inches or something like that, and um, and nothing happens. I think after the the uh, ice big ice storm that they had in in twenty fourteen here, they they learned their lesson because they weren't yeah, prepared, right. and you know, people spent the night on the freeway, and and uh, I guess I guess not not wanting that to happen again, obviously. Sure. So, are you born and raised in Georgia? I know you live there now. No, born and raised in Maryland, Hagerstown, Maryland, and uh, okay. moved to LA when I was about nineteen. 
and I've been in Georgia since 2016. So, so what you? So I I have in my notes that you're a musician. Is it does that have anything to do with why you moved to L.A.? Yeah, yeah, and and <laughs> that's why I moved to L.A. Period. Um, yeah. So I played music professionally for for a long time, and and I was in a band called The Calling. Um, which most people know of from the song Wherever You Will Go. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was also in a band called Course of Nature and, you know, a couple others, but uh, put records out and toured all over the world for, for years, and here I am. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. What do you play? Guitar. Yeah. So if you if you listen to that song by The Calling, that's you on the guitar on that record. That No, it's actually not. I joined the band later. The band kind of split up. Uh, after the second record had come out, I joined and was in it for a number of years, you know, after that, but, uh, we wrote a bunch of music and toured and I was part of the follow-up solo record, uh, that Alex Band, the singer of The Calling did and, uh, some work for commercial, you know, uh, music for commercials and TV shows and stuff like that. We did an EP. Mm-hmm. So, what brought you to Georgia when you left LA? I was kind of looking for a change. Um, you know, my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, um, was she's born and raised in LA, and you know, I had quit the calling and was like, "Man, what do I do now?" You know, I've spent my 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 whole adult life playing music, and it's a it's a grind. Mm-hmm. It really is. We both worked in entertainment. Uh, for a long time. And I think we just needed a change, change of pace. You know, LA keeps getting more and more populated, keeps getting more and more expensive. And right. uh, we just, we just kind of dipped and, and I had an opportunity to work in the film industry here in Georgia, uh, which was never, you know, working, living in Georgia was never on my radar, was never part of my plan, mm-hmm. but uh, did it. And, uh, you know, we, like I say, been here for a few years, but um LA still has a has a special place in my heart, I guess. Sure. So, uh, do, do you still work in the TV industry, or you do just the podcast now? No, no, just podcasts, and I and I do all the music for my podcasts. So, mm-hmm. um, that's that's a full time full time job now. Right, and and you you produce, write, narrate, do the music. You do everything for your show, right? Your shows, I should say. You've had two. Yeah, yeah, two, and and working on a third now. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I have a sound designer, you know, who masters and mixes and masters the final, you know, before it gets released, mm-hmm. and a story editor, uh, Jason Hoke at Imperative Entertainment, who you know I have my deal through to do the podcasts. So those two guys and myself really are it. But when it comes to writing the script and you know, as you said, the music, uh, doing all the interviews, uh, putting the initial sessions together. All that kind of stuff. It's sometimes I say, unfortunately, that's all me. Right, right. So how did how did you get into podcasting? It kind of fell into it, honestly. Um, was working on an HBO series called The Outsider with Jason Bateman. I love and, that show. Yeah, yeah. In 2019, and we filmed in this little town in North Georgia called Winder. And mm-hmm. you know, I met Stony Burt. Who you know, if you if you're mm-hmm. not familiar, is the son of of Billy Sunday Bird, who was the the hitman and enforcer for the Dixie Mafia in the '60s and '70s. And I met him, and and you know he's he's such a character, and he, one of those people I just 
you want to talk to more and you want to hear more of his story and the stories that he does tell were really just incredible. And I called a friend of mine at Imperative and I said, man, you, you know, I met this guy. You got to hear this story. It's, it's a movie or a TV series. It's mm -hmm. something. And he said, well, you know, we have this new <clears throat> podcast division. He's like, why don't you do a podcast on it? So a couple meetings later, you know, there I was now a podcaster. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'd never even listened to a podcast before, you know, all the way through. So I was like, sure. I, yeah, I'll try that. And that's it, man. I mean, that's nice. it. It, it worked out and did well. And they said, why don't you do some more? That's awesome. I mean, that's so many people's story is just kind of somehow fell into the the podcast space. I'm, I'm super. So the outsider is one of my favorite Stephen King books. And so I, and I really love the series. What, what did you do for uh, on that, that crew? What was your position? Uh, I was one of the location managers. So, you know, okay. responsible for, Scouting and finding the locations to match what was in the script and and then facilitating setting that up and, you know, which can be a pretty big undertaking when you're shutting down the entire downtown of, of some some little town, you know, where the main arteries are. So, that's, that's what we were mm -hmm. doing. And that's, you know, I had to meet as many people as I could and that's how I ended up meeting Stoney initially. Did you ever meet Jason Bateman? Yeah, yeah, many times. I, I worked on the outs or uh sorry, uh, Ozark season three for a while as well. So uh, worked oh, wow. on a couple projects with him. Um you know, we're not buddies, we're not spending Thanksgiving with each other's families or anything, but <laughs> I got to know him a little bit. He's a very cool guy, very uh very nice guy. I'm glad to hear that. He's one of my favorite actors. I always li like to hear that he's actually a nice guy and not an asshole. Uh <laughs> yeah, it's always good to hear that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we're going to talk about your your new show, but but briefly, let's uh, talk a little bit about. So you met um, Britt was a, the last name. What is the what was his son? Uh, Stony Burt. Stony Burt. Um, Britt Burt. Uh, and so uh, Billy Sunday Burt is known as the most dangerous man in Georgia history. He is. So t tell us a little bit about that. Was a, that was a, a twelve episode series? Tell us a little bit about that uh, that show. Well, you know, I really started that out thinking that I was going to tell a story about, you know, leader of the Dixie Mafia, started out, you know, moonshine and f fast cars and robbing banks. And I mean, it really it was such a time in American history that I think is, is really special. It could not happen today. You know, what these guys mm -hmm. got away with just, I mean, thankfully, but couldn't have happened today. And and I don't mm -hmm. think because of technology, because they had the fast cars and and the things that they did, it couldn't have happened before 1960, you know, five. So, really special piece of American history. But you know, this guy was was bad to the bone. I mean, he really was. He he has that title of most dangerous man in Georgia history for a reason. You know. He's he's known to have killed 56 people, and a lot of people think that that it's more like 100. Um, he was a hitman. He was a paid hitman for the Dixie Mafia. He was kind of the, the ringleader, um, you know, robbed hundreds of banks and, you know, never caught. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. eventually, obviously, he was, but for, you know, 
for over a decade, just kind of had the run of, of North Georgia and the Carolinas and he would go to Texas and he would go to all these other places for contract hit jobs. And, and his, and his kid, Stoney, you know, was, was kind of along for, for the ride on a lot of that. So he has this unbelievable memory, you know, of this, this guy who was his hero, his dad. And, uh, you know, just this wide eyed kid watching all this happen and, and it getting burned into his brain. And so now he's been able to tell that stuff in incredible detail. Did he know growing up that his dad was the bad guy? Yeah, I think really early on he, he figured it out. Um, you know, but again, <laughs> I don't think he really knew the extent of it. I don't think he ever connected the dots as, as to what that really meant. You know, for him, his dad was the fastest race car driver that ever was. And the, you know, made yeah. the best whiskey and ladies loved him and guys wanted to be like him. And in so many respects, that was true. But I don't think as a kid, he put two and two together that people were afraid of his, his father for a reason, you know. It's, so that show goes out, it's a success. And then Imperative Entertainment says they want you to do more. So, so the, the show we're here to talk about today, Fox Hunter, which is a 10-part limited series. This is the story of the murder of Rhonda Sue Coleman. How, how did you come across that story? Well, after I finished in the red clay, I was looking for another project. You know, once once Imperative said, "Hey, let's let's keep the train rolling," and um, I was contacted by by a lot of people after in the red clay came out, saying, "Hey, you should do this story. You should do this one." And and one of those people was a private investigator at the time. And named uh, Jody Ponzel, and he had actually been hired by the Coleman family to investigate their their daughter's murder. And I think he just sort of got to this point where he couldn't really do more, and he wanted to try to get this to a bigger audience. And he said, you know, I, I listened to your last project. I loved it. I think you're the guy to do this. And, and eventually, you know, I decided, uh, I thought there was something that I could add or bring to that story of, of Rhonda's. Um, and that's, that's it. Yeah. And so you, through the podcast, you, you re-examine the evidence that's there. You unearth some new leads. And then it, it seems like you might've found the person who actually, the, like the one person who actually knows the truth in her case. I, I don't know about that. <laughs> I, I kind of know, you know, what I believe I, I've been very careful in this podcast to not assume guilt on anybody. You know, it's just because I didn't feel it was my place to. I think that there are a lot of eyewitness accounts and there's a lot of information that has come forward with this podcast and through this podcast that's never been heard before or has never been heard by the right people before. Um, as far as, you know, finding the, the one guy with information, I think there's more than one person with, with the information. I, th I think there are several people in that area that know what happened. And as you listen to this project, you really come to learn that so many people, not only in 1990, but still today, just have this huge distrust and fear of local law enforcement there. Because you get, you know, you go, why, why haven't these people talked? Why, why do you have this information that could help solve this murder? And and everybody in this community cares about this girl, and and. Uh, you know, these people aren't coming forward with the information. So you, you find all these things out. As for, you know, like I said, the one guy that has the information, I don't think it's just one guy. 
I, th- I think there's been very few people though who have come forward with information. Right. Well, let's let's get into the case. So it, it's this is the murder of Rhonda Sue Coleman. Uh, is covered in the podcast Fox Hunter. Uh, this is 1990, as you mentioned. Is May. She's 18 years old. She goes to a senior class party, and then she's never seen again alive. So, so go ahead and give us the the basic beats of the case. Really, that's it. Um, a week before graduation, high school graduation, goes to a party. They've got this flag painting party, you know, to decorate banners and stuff for the senior class. And leaves that party. Some friends drop her off at her car at a convenience store. And, you know, the the three-mile trip from there to her house, for some reason, she pulled over onto a dirt road. And her car was found still running, driver's side door open, headlights on, you know, purse laying on the the passenger seat, and some footsteps of hers that apparently led into another vehicle. And that's it. And, you know, three days later, her body was found in in a field in a neighboring county, 15 miles away. And she uh, she had been burned pretty badly and apparently strangled. And that's, I don't want to say that's the extent of what we know, but I mean, that's, that's the basics. And, and for a long time, I mean, that's the big part of this case that the big question marks are trying to connect the dots of what happened to this girl in this three mile trip, you know, to her house. And, uh, that's, that's what I've tried to do in this podcast is try to figure out what happened and connect these dots. Yeah. It's a, it's a super interesting case and it. It seems like a case that should be solvable, you know, just just on its face. It would obviously robbery wasn't a motive. It seems like it was probably someone that she knew, you know, if it looks like she willingly got out of her car and got into another car. And then there's, you know, just like some profiling things. The fact that her body was dumped somewhere is another indicator. It's someone that she that she knew. Did, Did you did you formulate an opinion of? Who, or at least the the type of who that you think might have been responsible for her death? Yeah, yeah, of course. I really went into this. You know, if you go if you go to Hazelhurst and you and you say Rhonda Coleman's name, you know everyone's familiar with it. And if you say who do you think is responsible for Rhonda's death, you're going to get like three or four names mm-hmm. unequivocally. And you just and there are, it's the same three or four names. And and so of course when I started this, I heard those names. And I thought, you know, I'm going to come into this blind. I don't want to have any sort of preconceived notions of who I think is responsible and just see what I can find. And honestly, I can say that, you know, you end up with those three or four names in your head too. I mean, you look at the evidence that we do have, you look at all the circumstantial evidence, it really looks like it could have only been one or more of these three or four people. As far as like me saying, you know, who I think is responsible, uh, you know, I'm not, like I said, I've been very careful to never publicly say who I feel because it's just my feelings. I don't want to, mm-hmm. you know, publicly blame somebody who is innocent for murder. I-, I definitely think I have an idea of who is involved. And if you listen to the podcast, I think, you know, looking at, at the facts there, you can you can sort of piece it together yourself. You came up with some new leads during the, the course of your, uh, I guess, first of all, let me back up a little bit. Because what you're doing through the podcast is a piece of investigative journalism. I mean, you're out really investigating this case. Where, how did you? Because I had the same question asked to me all the time. With truth and justice, 
where'd you pick up that skill set? Like, did you just go out and just start asking questions and see where it leads? Because you do a good job investigating. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I don't know. I was going to say, I, I don't know if I have picked up that skill set yet, but, <laughs> but uh, I, I've always been good at talking to people, I think. You know, um, I think that's the one thing I've got going for me. I think in a case like this, the reason people felt comfortable talking to me as opposed to, you know, law enforcement was because I wasn't law enforcement. And I think that's that's probably the single thing that served me, you know, served me the best in, in this case. There was no fear of somebody getting arrested by telling me something, you know, um, mm-hmm. for withholding information all this time or whatever. And for whatever reason, you know, people locally, whether it's the Coleman family going out and saying, look, we we support this guy, we're, we're, he's working with us on our behalf, maybe that helped. Other than that, it was just asking questions that I think any person who looks at this case would ask. You know, it's, it's the questions that anybody would have. I've just asked them <laughs> to as many people as I could find that would talk to me. Right. Yeah, you said that the people had because I mean, like I said, this case seems like it should be solvable. We know you you, you laid out throughout the the podcast that there there were certainly some missteps between the local law enforcement and the GBI throughout this. You had, you had said a few minutes ago that people had a fear of the local police. What what where did that fear stem from? It's that's a good question, and and I. I don't really know. I mean, I, there's a lot of drug-related crimes that law enforcement was related to or involved in in the 80s and 90s uh, and possibly even today. So, I think, you know, and there, there are these, I don't know if they're urban legends or what, but, you know, you could disappear if you, if you talked – about the wrong person, you could, you could be made to disappear. And it, you know, these people that could make you disappear have law on their side, or maybe they are law enforcement, you know, and that sounds crazy. And it sounded crazy to me when I started this, but Mm -hmm. the more research I did, the more people, credible people that I talked to that have witnessed, you know, the former sheriff of, uh, of Jeff Davis County, where this happened, you know, being a part of a drug ring, you know, and mm-hmm. they've seen it with their own eyes. And, it, you know, that fear has to stem from that. You know, if your sheriff is part of a drug ring, he's part of organized crime. And right. if he's willing to do one thing, you know, that, that's a criminal activity, he's probably willing to do more. And that that's probably where it stems from. Uh, at one point, uh, you, you there were a lot of people that were raised as suspects over the years. There were some of her classmates, ex-boyfriends. And there were even members of the police department that were considered suspects at one point. Was it just because of that kind of history or what made some of these law enforcement officers suspects in the eyes of at least the public? Well, I think that, you know, certainly where we've ended, we've ended on, on one of our persons of interest or suspects that was a former deputy. There, it's well known and, and pretty well documented if you really – look into it heavily enough and deep enough. There were police officers, more than one at that time, that were pulling over young girls and soliciting them for sexual acts. 
that were harassing. There's allegations of, of a uniformed deputy raping a young, you know, an underage girl, you know, on, on the hood of his squad car. So mm-hmm. I think immediately and, and with the type of crime, it was, it was pretty clear from the beginning that this was someone she probably knew. Uh, just because of the way the crime laid out, um, there wasn't mm-hmm. a struggle. She obviously, or it appears she got into this vehicle willingly, and you would only do that, especially her, and she's running late for her curfew, which was not like her. So, it would have been someone she knew somebody she, or somebody she was comfortable with. And I think one of the narratives the the family has followed all this time is she would have only pulled over for someone she knew or a police officer who blue lighted her. So, you know, right away you're looking, all right, well, it's somebody she knew, a friend, an ex-boyfriend, or a police officer. Right, yeah, a, a police officer. I was, I was just thinking to myself as you were talking that, yeah, I, I guess that would make sense for who she would, on the side, why pull over on the side of the road in the middle of nowhere, get out of your car, willingly get into another vehicle. Yeah, being a a cop pulling her over definitely would would fit that narrative, right. for sure. And then you know it may even explain some of the you know some of the one misstep that I that I wrote down here is that what was it in 2017 there were fingernail clippings of Rhonda's were found at the sheriff's department that had never been processed, but they had been requested to be processed for DNA in like 2010. And then here they are seven years later and find out that that was never done. I mean, that's, it seems like some of these oversights, do you think they're oversights or does it seem like it's conspiratorial? <laughs> I, I am the least conspiracy theorist kind of guy that I know, honestly. Yeah. And so f- when I say things like this out loud, I, I kind of cringe at myself. Uh-huh. You know, looking at everything that's happened, that being one of them, you, you can't help, even as a sane, logical person, you, you can't help but wonder, is there some, some kind of conspiracy here? You know, as I said, one of the, one of the people that I think has landed uh, as a, as a uh, person of interest, as a suspect, was, is the sheriff's son, you know, the Sheriff Hall's son. And there are a lot of bad things that we've learned about that sheriff. As I said, the drugs, the corruption, all this. One thing, you know, that we know is all these people protected each other. They all had, whether they had dirt on each other or not, you know, and this goes up to the DA at the time. This goes to many Mm -hmm. other public officials. You know, uh, the, uh, if I go down, you're going down sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that has passed down, if it's an embarrassment, if there are the missteps that happened and the mistakes that were made that we know the GBI has admitted to making mistakes in this case. Is that out of embarrassment that we just want to try to shove this under the rug or look a different direction? I don't think any law enforcement agency wants to ever admit that one of their officers or multiple of their agents could have been involved or were involved in, in illegal activities, um, especially the cover-up of murder. So I, I can imagine... I can imagine that uh, that would cause some, some cover-up, you know, for lack of a better word. Yeah, I mean, it seems that you, you have a, a case that involves an 18-year-old girl. Obviously, the whole town is desperate to find out who did this. 
there's I mean the reward fund now was I have the the reward fund is over $160,000 for information yeah. that leads to an arrest. Yeah, for a, for a 31-year-old case, yeah. Yeah, and they've got fingernail clippings with potentially having DNA under them that are just sitting in the in the sheriff's department not being not being tested. Now, what I don't know is so they were found in 2017, were they ever tested? To our knowledge, they there was some sort of a, a initial forensic test done since that time that mm-hmm. to determine if there was DNA. And from what mm-hmm. we understand, that came back, conclu- you know, uh, positive that there is DNA under the fingernails. And what we're waiting for now is, you know, again from what I'm told, some new piece of machinery, some new analysis process at the FBI's crime lab that ha- will give us the best chances of determining and, and getting as close to a one-on-one match uh, as possible with that DNA. So COVID slowed everything down, of course. Mm-hmm. Right now we're waiting, you know, but apparently it, that process has begun and, and the fingernails will be tested. The DNA will be tested. I mean, it'd be great if that finally brings some closure to the case. Do, do you feel like you're doing the podcast has, has breathed some new life into the case? Yeah, absolutely. I think what it's done is held a magnifying glass up on, you know, the case and, and also the community and, and the community's fears and, and the things that the community cares about. I don't, re- I don't think the Coleman family realized how many people truly cared about Rhonda's story. And it's become bigger than just Rhonda. You know, the family is now working very, very hard to get a bill at Congress, um, which they've called Rhonda's Law, you know, which, which is all about information and trying to get information. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, from the GBI and, or, or FBI, whoever the agency might be, but I think that the community, when they, when they learned how in the dark the, the family has been kept, it really stirred something up in people. And, you know, a lot of people have told me, you know, Rhonda's murder was a, was a turning point in this community. It was before her murder, you left your keys in your car, you left your, you know, your front doors unlocked, you didn't worry. After mm-hmm. her murder, that all changed. And it was parents telling kids, don't, don't stop for a police officer you know, come home and, and, you know, picking their kids up from school instead of letting them get home themselves. I mean, it was a turning point. Yeah, that's the, the whole thing is tragic. And hopefully that DNA testing will get to the bottom of it. I, I wanted to ask you, I meant to ask you at the top of this, where did the title Fox Hunter come from? <laughs> Initially, when I started this, the, the one piece of information that I got was that there were fox hunters who had seen, or rather who had heard a girl scream, you know, which which we can piece together with the timeline and the chain of events that that was most likely Rhonda that they heard. They just didn't realize it, mm-hmm. uh, and that they saw a truck, you know, speeding by. Um, and I thought, as I dig into this, I'm going to find these guys. I'm going to find their family members. They're going to. That's the key. Was the fox hunters? So that that's where that came from. Uh-huh. You know, if you look at the album artwork, is is a dead cut tree, and. uh that image to me, it just, 
she where the, the location where she was found was a clear cut field and and it so it all kind of tied together for me but that's that's really where it went or where it came from all right my last heart eating question i have for you is is that a life size bust of elvis that i see on the shelf behind you <laughs> it's <laughs> It is a life-size bust. It is from the shoulders up. Uh, and I was given that as a gift. I've got so many Elvis things. I, I'll i see if you can uh, see this here. This is the Velvet Elvis. Oh, see? very nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm a fan. I'm a fan. And and that was given to me as a gift by somebody. But uh, people, people always give me Elvis things, and my wife won't let me hang them up in the house or put them in the house. <laughs> <laughs> Everything ends up in my studio. <laughs> right. Well, that's great. Well, it's been great to meet you. His name is Sean Kipe. The podcast is called Fox Hunter. Check it out. Could be your next true crime binge. Sean, thanks so much for joining me. Oh, I that's a I, I closed one second too early. Uh, you said you're working on another project. Any any details on that one that's going to be coming out? Uh, I'm hoping for summer. Uh, just, just okay. began and, and not, haven't really even disclosed what, what it's about, but, uh, it's, if you're a fan of, of In the Red Clay and Fox Hunter, you're going to like this one, but I'm hoping for summer and it's through Imperative Entertainment as well. And it's another, going to be another series, um, investigative series like these other two. Right. Correct. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me again. Check it out. The podcast is called Fox Hunter. And when you're done listening to that one, go check out In the Red Clay. Thanks for having me. True Crime Binge is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Audioboom. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing. Music and artwork by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. Our website, TrueCrimeBinge.com, was created by Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com. If you're a listener and would like to recommend a future guest or a podcaster that would like to request an interview, you can do so right on our website. And again, that web address is TrueCrimeBinge.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do me a huge favor and take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen. And make sure you give us a follow on social media. We can be found everywhere at True Crime Binge. Thank you so much for listening and make sure you tune in next Wednesday morning for another podcaster, another case, and another True Crime Binge.